The reading today is Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17, which can be found on page 1234. Revelation 2, chapter 12 to 17. To the church in Pergamon. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some amongst you who who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Barak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Does it ever feel like living for Christ and living in London in 2020 is incompatible, like it's impossible, like it's diametrically opposed. The world wants me to think this and to do this and to be like this, but Christ, on the other hand, says be like that. It feels like we're the rope in a cosmic tug of war. On the one side is Christ, and he's pulling me inextricably towards himself, But on the other side is the world. And right now it feels like it's pulling me that way, the opposite way. Do you ever feel like that? If that's you, this letter to Pergamum is for you. This letter is to help you live in the here and now, in that struggle, before Christ wins the war once and for all. This letter helps us to choose Christ, not compromise. Choose Christ, not compromise. So let's dive in, and I have four headings to guide us through today. The first one is the city that demands compromise. The second is the church that has compromised. The third is the Christ who demands truth. And then the fourth is the Christ who will right every wrong. So firstly, the city that demands compromise. Let me read from verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, Where Satan lives. 
the city that demands compromise. This is Jesus speaking to seven churches in Asia. And he knows that Pergamum is a tough city to be a Christian. We see in verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And then he says it again at the end. He says, in your city, where Satan lives. In fact, Jesus knows it's such a tough place to be a Christian that they've had their first martyr. Antipas, Christ's faithful witness, a member of their church, who was put to death in your city. And do you see what he commends them for? Despite Satan ruining, uh, running their city, and despite their friend and their husband and their brother being killed, verse 13, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Despite all that's gone on and the huge pull from the city in the battle between Christ and Satan, Christ and compromise, they're still clinging on to Jesus. They're still being true to his name. And he says, well done. Thank you. They've not abandoned him completely. But Jesus knows them and he knows where they live and he knows how tempting it must have been to compromise on him. But they've not done that yet. Now, I think that's harder than it sounds. I think we get a few historical details about Pergamum in place and we realize how hard it was for them to cling to Christ. So there's the name Pergamum and it it means in Greek parchment. It comes from the word parchment. And it had the world's second biggest library. It had over 2,000 pieces of uh, 2,000 scrolls. So it would have been an intelligent city to live in. Now we know, don't we, what it's like to be a Christian in an intelligent city. In London, there's this myth going around about infinite human progress. We're going to keep developing and we're going to keep learning and we're going to keep getting smarter. And with enough education, we're going to be able to save ourselves and fix the world. And that's a huge tug on us from the world, isn't it? To compromise on Christ. The world has all the answers. We don't need religion to explain things anymore. Another way in which Pergamum would have demanded compromise involves our faithful witness, Antipas, in verse 13. So the Roman emperor, the seat for Asia Minor, which was basically modern-day Turkey, the seat was in Pergamum, so the governor would sit there and govern. And in fact, Pergamum was the first city to build a temple to the living, first living Caesar. So they invented the imperial cult in AD 29. They were the first city to do that. So in Pergamum, every loyal citizen was expected to offer incense to the image of the emperor and to declare that Caesar is Lord. Now that's impossible for a Christian, isn't it? That's an impossible situation to live in. You can't affirm that Caesar's Lord. Jesus is Lord. You know that. It's not hard to imagine how Antipas died. Executed because he wouldn't pay his due respect to Caesar. They would have made it so easy for him. They would have said, Antipas, just say that Caesar is Lord and we'll let you go back to your family. You can feel that tug in the tug of war. You can feel the city demanding compromise. But Antipas refused, and he felt the sharpness of the governor's sword. 
Now, in London, we're not being killed. Praise God for that. Other parts of the world, Christians are dying, but not in London. But as you follow the news, you find, I think, more and more frequently that Christians are in court because they've tried to remain true to Jesus and they're being sued or typically they've lost their job for some reason. And I know because of our location, a lot of us work in politics at this church. So I'm sure that you're acutely aware that it's becoming harder and harder to be a politician and a Christian. You'll be accused of being homophobic because of the Bible's teaching on marriage or transphobic because of the Bible's teaching on gender or anti-women's rights because of the Bible's teaching on the status of the unborn. These names, these insults, are the new weapon of choice to enforce London's demands on us. We're in a shame culture. We won't be executed like Antipas, praise God, but we will be vilified. And like the governor's sword, it will hurt us. And then I think the most pervasive way in which Pergamum demanded compromise from Christians comes in verse 14, which is what we're coming to in a minute. We've not read it yet, but it was food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. So Pergamum had feast to the pagan gods, and it was essentially the entire social scene for the city. So apparently, as you walked into the city, the skyline would be dominated by these impressive temples to Dionys and Athena, and this statue called Zeus the Savior, which just dominated the city skyline. And worship at these temples was like the social and civic heartbeat of the city. And you'd have these feasts together very regularly. Drunken feasts with lots of wine and meat killed to idols and maybe temple prostitutes. And that was normal. That's how you related to people in the city. That's where you would build up your contacts. That's where you'd get to know people. That's where you'd find business relationships and find love. The marketplace where you bought your food might have actually been within these temples. So for the Christian, what does it mean that these temples govern everything? I think it meant you had been ostracized. You would have been the social outcast. You would have been considered weird because you would not join in these pagan feasts. It might even mean that they were poor because they didn't have these business contacts. It would literally mean they were going hungry because they weren't eating the feasts. Just imagine how easy it would be for the Christian to compromise in that situation. To go along to the pagan feast. To be involved in the life of the city. To not be poor and hungry. Think back to your teenagers teenagers, and being the only kid not invited to the party. That's the feeling, I think. That exclusion Now, I think this is where we're most likely to feel the demands for compromise from London. We'll feel that pull and let Christ lose the tug of war. I think it's our fear of being outcasts, being rejected, being left out. So think about those two things in, the, in verse 14, feasting and sex. It's two places where Christ calls us to be different. Think of the Christmas office party last month that I'm sure many of you went to. All that bonding that happens over booze, that's not so far away from a feast. 
the Christian is excluded because she won't drink too much. Or at the pub on a Friday with colleagues, the Christian's the boring one. Or maybe you're the only one in your friendship group who hasn't watched the semi-pornographic TV show Love Island. You can't join in that conversation. You're excluded. Or think of the celibate Christian who longs for a partner but won't date a non-Christian. Or who will put romantic love second because of Christ's teaching on sexual ethics. Not being weird is one of the strongest pulls that the city has on us in the cosmic tug of war. The city demands compromise. If we want to get along and be involved and be liked and valued, London says to us, compromise on Christ. Compromise. So that's our first point, the city that demands compromise. It was true of Christians in Pergamum. I think it's true of Christians in London. And I think it's true universally. Christians just never quite fit in. We've got a different Lord. But Jesus says to them, well done. You did not renounce your faith in me. Well done. The question for us, though, is how do we respond to this tension that we feel? How do we respond? And that brings us to the second point, the church that has compromised. The church that has compromised. So Jesus has encouraged them. He said, you live in a tough place, but you remain true. But then verse 14, we get this word, nevertheless. 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So after the encouragement, he points out places where the church are losing the tug of war. Places where the church are compromising where they really shouldn't be. Let me read verse 14. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So at the beginning of 14, we see that there are some among you, so not everyone in the church, but some, who hold to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And that word likewise at the start of 15... I think they're the same thing. They're synonymous. It's the same false teaching. But what were they teaching? Well, we get an illustration from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers with Balaam and Balak. You might remember Balaam. What happened was God's people had just come out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus, and they're camped in Moab territory, Moabite territory. And Balak, who's the king of the Moabites, he's not best pleased about this, so he consults a local prophet uh, called Balaam, And Balaam teaches Balak how to ruin the Israelites. Now, there's too many to just attack them, and they can't put a curse on them. So what Balaam teaches Balak to do is to make the Israelites compromise on God. That's his tactic. So what he suggested was sending the Moabite women into the camp as a honey trap. And in Numbers 25, we see the Israelite men seduced by the women and sleeping with them and eating their food sacrificed to idols, and worshipping Baal, this idol. And God punishes them, and he kills 24,000 Israelites in a plague. The issue for the Israelites was that they were meant to exclusively worship God, and they didn't. They compromised to the surrounding culture that they were in, with sex and with food and with worship, because of Balaam's teaching. 
Okay, so come back to the church in Pergamum, and we find Jesus saying to them, some of you are holding to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, which is synonymous. So what does that mean in the city where Satan lives? I think it means the Nicolaitans are teaching the church to compromise. I think they're saying to them, and some are believing them, come on guys, the city's just not that bad. We need to be a part of the culture, join in. Or they're saying something like, we can have Christ and we can have the world. We can be Christians on a Sunday and go along to these feasts and not be excluded. Join in. There's no need to be excluded from society. There's no need to be hungry. Have both. They're denying it's a tug of war. And friends, this is such a tempting pull. Such a tempting pull. It's so tempting to want to compromise in this way, I think. This kind of teaching has been there for every generation in the church. Does the church just compromise to the world? Things are easier when they do. There's two ways, I think, in which we see this happening, the Nicolaitans happening in London now. The first is really obvious. It's the church becoming liberal. It's sections of the Anglican church in the West conducting same-sex marriages. It's the Church of England introducing liturgy for people to reaffirm their baptismal vows after they've transitioned to a new gender. It's the church ignoring Christ's teaching to such an extent that they just become indistinguishable from the surrounding world. But the second way is more subtle and more relevant. The second one I see in my own heart a little bit. It's the temptation to avoid suffering by just going along with stuff. Just going along with stuff. It's the temptation to have one more drink than I should have at the party. Or the temptation to join in the gossip or to tell the dirty joke. It's the temptation for me living in North London to drive like the people drive in North London. (laughs) It's the temptation when I'm speaking to one of the gay people that I know to not speak about Jesus because I worry about where that conversation might lead and I don't want to have that conversation. It's a temptation to be like the world, put simply. It's a false teaching and it's in the church and it's very attractive. Just compromise, they say. It's fine. It's fine. The third point is very simple. I've called it the Christ who demands truth, but really it's just those two words at the start of verse 16. And I think this is why Jesus writes the letter. Repent, therefore, exclamation mark. Repent, therefore. Jesus wants us to turn away from those compromises that we've made. He wants us to turn back from the place where we've let the city win the tug of war. And he wants us to come back to him. Come back to his side. He wants the church, in the way in which they live in the city, to be distinct for him. He wants them not to be like the Israelites in Moab. Not to join in the city's sexual immorality and their pagan feasts. He wants us to be prepared to suffer for his sake. Not to take the easy way out in the city. He wants Christ, not compromise. He wants Christ in us, not compromise. 
Friends, this is a tough teaching, I think. It's tough to be a Christian in a city like Pergamum or a city like London. But I do want you to stop and ask yourself, are there any compromises I need to repent of? Are there any compromises I need to repent of? Where am I holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Where have I compromised in the city? Let's think on that for a second. be it sex or food or popularity, Jesus says, repent therefore. Let me read the rest of 16. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat this. I think the call to repent comes with a threat from Jesus. He says, the sword of my mouth. Do you see it's there in verse 12 as well? It's talking about his word. But it's also referring back to chapter 1 where John, who wrote John's gospel, has a vision of Jesus and he's there in this terrifying, magnificent vision and he's got a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's the threat. Christ is coming back soon, verse 16, to destroy Satan. And I think he's saying, if you compromise to the city, if you just become like the city, the city in which Satan has its throne... You will be one of the things Christ is fighting against when he comes back. I think in the context where a Christian has been killed by the sword of the Roman governor, it feels like the Roman governor has the power and he used it on Antipas. I think Christ is saying, no, that's wrong. I've got the sword. I'm the one to fear, not the city. Christ is going to win the tug of war decisively, On the last day, he wants Christ in you, not compromise. Be on the right side when he wins. That's the threat. Here's the promise. It's our final verse. It's the Christ who will right every wrong. The Christ who will right every wrong. Let me read the last verse. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the one who is victorious, to the one who has chosen Christ, not compromise, Christ will right every wrong. To the one who has missed out on the feasts now, Jesus will give food, he will give hidden manna. To the one who has been excluded now and missed out on relationship now, Jesus will give a new and a secret name known only to you and him. Do you see that? Christ will right every wrong. For the hungry one, God will give a much better feast in the future. One where you're not eating food that you've given to God's, but instead you're eating food where God has given it to you. The secret manner. It's so much better. So much better than what the city has. 
or the white stone. We don't know what that means. There's seven options in the commentators. But I like the idea of a new name. That's such a picture of intimacy between you and Jesus, isn't it? Like a nickname known only between lovers. Jesus says, I think, to the one who misses out on sexual intimacy now, Christ promises far greater intimacy in the future. Friends, this is the promise if you hold on for victory. If you don't compromise as our city demands, if you hold to Christ, if you've been hungry in this world, you will be given God-given food. If you've been fired or sued for Christ, if you've been rejected by family, if you've been overlooked at work, if you've lost friends for his sake, he will put right every wrong. He will know you intimately and he will feed you well. Hold on, hold on for that last day. Christ will win the tug of war. Remain true to him. Our city demands compromise. Some in the church have compromised. If that's us, let's repent. Because Jesus demands truth. He is coming back to judge with his double-edged sword. He is going to decisively win that war. And if we choose Christ's truth, not compromise, our reward is going to be huge. Let me pray.